Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The NBA and college basketball are back. The NFL and college football playoffs are right around the corner. With all these sports going on, there are plenty of bets to lock in, so if you're thinking about picking the Lakers to repeat their NBA championship or someone to upset Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs, you need to go to betonline.ag. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online, and there's always the online casinos as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Polina Edmonds. And today on the pod, I have a very special guest. She is a Olympian and a veteran in the sport of figure skating. She's Debbie Thomas. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. (laughs) So you were born in New York, but you grew up in San Jose. And your parents were computer programming analysts in the Bay Area and you skated in San Jose as well. How did you get into skating and where did you train? Um, Well, my mom was one of these moms that was, she was very into the arts and things like that. So she always had season tickets to the opera and the symphony and the ballets and took me to Broadway musicals and figure skating. And so that was really what got me um, exposed to figure skating and Uh, anybody who knows kind of the history knows that I actually idolized the comedian Mr. Frick in the show (laughs) and that's who I that's who I wanted to be I didn't actually know about the Olympics at first Um, that came a little bit later after I had already started competing but um, my mom was just one of those people that you know she went to go watch a skating competition before I even started competing. I was actually out in New York visiting uh, relatives. And when I came back, she's like, oh, I went to see a skating competition. And so she she said, you know, you might want to go see one. So we went to see a competition. I think it was in Stockton. I was like, I could have done that. <laughs> you know, I want to do that. So yeah, so I started competing about nine. And I started skating in San Jose at Eastridge Ice Arena, same place where Rudy Galindo started skating. He, he was really tiny back then. <laughs> <I> <laughs> that's was, so awesome. Know, yeah. I, I mean, live I, like within a mile of Eastridge. So that's so yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, we had like, they had this awesome place that you could get pizza called Orange Bowl. And they had these O-Joys that were like frozen orange juice and they were so good. And they had frozen custard and they went out of business oh no (laughs) next to it was like gift gate and you know we would get all these like stuffed snoopies and the snoopy clothes and you know whenever you would go skate at redwood empire up in santa rosa that was like the mother load of you know the snoopy clothes (laughs) yeah definitely we carry around all of our stuffed animals oh that was that was our childhood skating experience. That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. 
Your mom was a really big part of your skating career. Uh, she was a single mom, right? Juggling work life with raising you and your brother and supporting your athletic dreams. Talk about your mom's involvement in your skating career. Um, mainly, you know, she just told me I could put my, you know, I could do anything I put my mind to and I believed her. <laughs> Funny. And, um, you know, she used to always say, if you work as hard spending my money as I have to work making it, then I'll keep this going. And, you know, she, we commuted, you know, she, she was commuting like a hundred miles a day, just carting me between home and school and ice rink and her work and things like that. So yeah, it was a lot of sacrifice for her. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that you just talked about like your mom giving you those little pep talks of like telling you you can do anything and then you just believed her. I Yeah, it was similar. Much yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I totally felt that growing up as well with my mom where I even just at like seven, she'd be like, you can do this. I'm like, yeah, that's going to happen yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably, I wish most people would see how easy it is. <laughs> you know, it's, well, one of the famous quotes of mine is, you know, I was too stupid to know what was impossible so you can accomplish a lot when you when you don't think things are impossible it's true there's no barrier to hold you back exactly <laughs> that's awesome it was actually really really great for me back in 2018 i uh, had to withdraw from the olympic nationals oh, wow. so to okay. speak um i had a foot injury and so i withdrew before the long program but i ran into your mom at the arena Oh, wow. And she came up to me and introduced herself and said she was Demi Thomas's mom. And um, she just gave me a really good pep talk about, you know, skating and life and going to school. I was going to college at Santa Clara University at the time. And she was That's just That's where she got her me. MBA. Did you yeah. know that? Yeah, I think she told me that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, yeah, it was honestly such a good feeling talking to her about that just because I was in such like a sad moment you, you skating made her day by doing <laughs> that and now you like now it's like ingrained in the you know in the internet now in the podcast so <laughs> I, it's funny. funny because I was just telling Shepard a story because Shepard um skated in he, you know he grew up in Atlanta area and um and so my first nationals was in Atlanta and you know my mom like I told you she would just you know, she knew how skating was judged before I started competing. That's like how into it. And she would have the program <laughs> and she would like take notes on every single skater, you know, like down to like preliminary. And it'd be like purple dress, good axle, coached by, you know, so and so. And so I was telling Shepard this funny story about my first nationals because we were, we were there and it was an Olympic year. And, uh, you know, cause she would like read the skating magazine, like every single little competition that existed and she knew like, and so we're in Atlanta and sitting in the audience and just watching a practice. I think it was like a senior ladies practice and, and she strikes up a conversation with this kid and, um, and he wasn't competing in nationals. He was just there to watch. And so finally she's like, so what's your name? And he says, Jared. And she's like, oh, Jared Hoadley-Rigo? <laughs> and he was just like, 
you've heard of me? You know, and he was probably like intermediate or novice or something and didn't make it to nationals. And he was just like, oh my gosh. So it was just funny. And he had such, he had this like long hyphenated name and she like remembered it. It was so funny. So that's, that's like the wife. ultimate skating fan. <laughs> totally. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Wow. Well, you started taking from your coach, Alex McGowan, at the age of 10, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk about your relationship with him as a coach. How did that go for you training? Do I have to? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so let me just tell you, because this, this is like a good, like, stories that people probably didn't know. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was, you know, I won my first competition. I came in first. So... I thought I was a superstar and I pretty much hated first test figures. Like I wasn't very good at figures before I went to McGowan anyway. And I, um, I hated threes to center with a passion. So I just decided, well, I'm just going to skip first test and go (laughs) to second test. And so, you know, I skated the same competition a year later, but as a juvenile instead of, you know, pre-juvenile, and I got something like 13th in figures or something. And that was like, oh my gosh, you know, because I didn't even have to do figures in my first competition. And so, uh, you know, I was like, oh, this is horrible, you know. And um, so, you know, that's when my mom was, you know, kind of, you know, looking around for coaches and things like that. Not at the time, you know, Christy Karsgaard. And, and Alex McGowan had, you know, the top skaters placing the highest. So, you know, we, and, and, and she was talking to other skating moms. And, and so we went to, uh, you know, meet with Christy. And then we went to meet with uh, Mr. McGowan. And uh, I remember, you know, Christy was like, well, I would put her back in first test, right? But, you know, Mr. McGowan didn't really say anything <laughs> about it. So I was like, I want him because I'm not doing that threes to center thing. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's how a 10-year-old picks a coach. And it's so funny because the first figures lesson that I had, he used to do this thing where if you were going off the tracing, he would put you know, he would be like, give me your glove. And he'd, he'd put the glove down so you wouldn't keep going off the tracing. So he's like, well, give me your gloves. You know, and he put them down and he's like, Lisa Costa, give me your gloves. Corey Long, give me your gloves. Danny Goley, give me your gloves. Hillary Hasty, go get the lost and found box. Yeah. <laughs> so he had gloves all the way around my circles. You know, I'm like this little kid. And I'm like, you know, my mom comes to pick me up and I'm like, he put gloves all around my circles, you know? And she's like, well, do you want to go to Christy then instead? You know? And I was like, no, no. (laughs) That's so funny. So yeah, it was just silly things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was a very psychological skater because my mom put me in an optimal performance workshop when I was about probably about 12 you know when I learned about visualization and the power of the mind and all that kind of stuff and actually you know 
<laughs> McGowan made fun of it at first, and then I skated really well right after, and he's like, oh, make sure you do that, <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> we, <laughs> you know, we used to, we used to push each other's buttons quite a bit, and, um, you know, if I didn't want to do something his way, I would just do it, like, really crappy until I got my way, <laughs> so, you know, I probably was not the easiest person to teach but that determination and confidence in myself is actually what what made me a good skater it's time to make your outdoor experiences better with canon canon sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity they're made with japanese optics that make their lenses clearer lighter stronger and italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch Use the exclusive code KANONCAST15 at KANON.com to receive 15% off on your first pair. That's K-A-E-N-O-N-C-A-S-T-1-5. KANON. Clearly better. So, you know, but we, you know, we had a hard time sometimes getting along. And um, towards the end, you know, with the Olympics, um, you know, I wasn't really in school full time. I, I, I was in I was in full time until like December, you know, because uh, we had to move to uh, Boulder to train because my rink in Redwood City had to close down. They were having this thing where rinks weren't able to stay open because the liability insurance was getting too high because they had them lumped in with like amusement parks and things like that. So we ended up going to Boulder and training at the University of Colorado which was actually a really ideal spot to train. They had a rec center, had a weight room and everything. It was beautiful, beautiful rink. It had like one window just open to the mountains. It was actually really ideal. But I was really out of my element not being in school those, those few months leading up to the Olympics. And I really kind of, you know, I got to where I felt like I was kind of doing it for everybody but myself. And I remember having like about a 10 hour phone conversation with my mom and I like really didn't want to go. And then I, you know, I was thinking, gosh, you know, I would have to spend the rest of my life explaining why I quit like right before the Olympics. So that wouldn't be fun. So, um, you know, but I, I wish I had actually enjoyed the Olympics. Um, because it was in Calgary, it was close to home. It was close enough to home that we didn't stay. Like we went for opening ceremonies and then we came back and trained, which I hated training. You know, like I was like, I liked competition. It's like, oh, I only have to skate two hours. Perfect. You know, but then when we got there, um, you know, I just think Mr. McGowan was just nervous. It's like his first Olympics. And, you know, I think he probably wanted to win more than I did. And so it was like, oh, you know, I got this ice time at this curling rink. It's only like four hours away. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go. And so, yeah, it, 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 there was a lot of um, tension. And, you know, my, my first husband, you know, he was, he was kind of the one kind of keeping me together at that time. Um, he would come and you know, just stretch me out at the rink. And that was something that I was used to doing, you know, and it was just, I don't know, it was just the energy was, was off. 
And um, I feel like if I had actually just enjoyed the Olympics, you know, it would have been a different experience, a different energy, you know, but you can't really use that as an excuse. It's like you have, you know, you have to turn it on and off like a light switch. It's like, you know, I was skating really well in the competition leading up to the long program, but I had put in my mind that I wanted the Olympics to be like the performance of my life, you know, and, you know, but I'm one of these people that like, if I miss the first jump, then I like stop the music and start over, <laughs> which you can't really do in the Olympics. So it was really crucial for me to hit the triple triple at the beginning of the program. And I really just, you know, did something that I would never do. I mean, it stunk because I drew last to skate, which, you know, people seem to think that that's a good spot. Not for me, it's not. You know, I had like no adrenaline left by the time I got out there. And you can, you can actually see it on my face. Like I just was like, had this glazed over look instead of my determined look. And usually I would get that determined look because you know, I was either not skating clean programs on practice or whatever. And I would be like having to convince myself like you can do it. And um, I was actually really, really trained for the Olympics. And so, you know, that, that morning, I mean, I couldn't miss a jump on practice. And so I was really kind of out of my element. I wasn't, you know, psyching myself up the same way that I normally was. And, you know, and I think Mr. Regout, he always kind of believed, you know, repetition is just going to make your body automatically do it in competition. And, you know, I never really kind of believed that. Like I knew, you know, you had to focus and whatnot. And so for whatever reason, when I went out there to start, you know, he was just like, do it for America and do it, like all this stuff. And I was just like, ah. Uh, you know, that's pressure <laughs> so I'm like standing there like huh you know and so I should have said to myself Debbie this is the Olympics and you want to do the program of your life so you better get you know mm -hmm. just do it and actually just do it is what I said at the beginning of my short program and my friend is you know for years he was saying you came up with just do it before night <laughs> You know, and I just would laugh it off, you know. So finally, I like looked it up once and I was like, oh my God, they did come up with it like three months after, <laughs> after I said it at the beginning of my short program. They were probably watching. I know. <laughs> well, the story is actually like, it's kind of a sick story. Like they claim that they got Just Do It from a guy that was about to be executed. And he said, let's do it. And oh. they changed it to just do it so they wouldn't have to give royalties to the family. That's the story. Interesting. I think it's a likely story. Yeah. I that... stole it from Debbie Thomas. So yes. anyway, <laughs> so getting back to, um, <laughs> getting back to the long program. So yeah, so I was kind of like, you know, I actually said, you know, you're not ready. And I really didn't do what I should have done, which is just focus and say, you know, if you want to do this, you better do it now. Um, and so I actually said to myself, like, maybe my body will just do it, which I just never believed that, you know. And, um, 
and I just went in really passively and two fitted the combo. And then I was like, ah, this stinks. So now I got to be out here for like four and a half minutes and I can't do the program of my life. So I just, you know, my heart wasn't in it. And, you know, afterwards, a lot of, um, you know, people would like see me on the street. And, oh, New York stopped when you skated in the Olympics, you know, and I'm thinking, I wish I had known that because I probably would have <laughs> skated better. Uh-huh. You know, like I didn't really think about like the whole world is watching this, um, you know, and they're really pulling for you. And like, if you don't skate well, you know, it's going to, you know, hurt a lot of people's feelings. So, so yeah, I mean, I did kind of feel like I wasn't doing it for myself. Um, but I think people need to kind of learn that, hey, you still can survive after you, you know, have, you know, you know, because you were at obviously a moment where you had to, had to pull out. And, um, you know, I, I know Karen Davy at that Olympics, she got sick and she had to pull out. So, you know, we all have to, you know, we can't put everything on the Olympics, you know what I mean? It's, right. it's nice to, you know, hit and just nail it, you know, and have a Paula Lipinski moment or a Syracuse moment, but it's not the end of the world. There's like so many things in life that, you know, you know, they're more important, honestly. Definitely. So, um, so you can't just, um, do what? You, okay, first of all, world champion and, and set, made history. He doesn't realize we're on a podcast. <laughs> no, I love it. That's Shepard in the background. No, no, you can't, like, you've got to take, take away from this. You've made history, you've made cultural history, and you were the only person who could beat Katarina Witt. And it's like, there's so much takeaway from that, that it's not a failure. It's, a, it's an extraordinary achievement among a number of achievements in your life you're i don't really know anyone else in the world like you including all the skate of there's all the definitely skaters. nobody like me <laughs> it's it's but, true you're a skating icon here's debbie what people didn't realize here's what people didn't realize and this you know i'm gonna get a little into sort of things that people don't think about but you know, we, we athletes were actually kind of used as propaganda. We're still being used as propaganda, but Mm -hmm. you know, back then it was this East versus West thing. And, you know, and to this day, I mean, I have people that will come up to me and be like, Oh, that Katarina bitch, she was just a bitch, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) you don't even know her. Like, how can you even say that? Right. And so I realized that the media, you know, does these, it's social engineering right Mm -hmm. and so you know Katarina was going through uh you know she wanted she actually wanted to be a skating star and an actress and all of these things but she happened to live in an eastern Bloc country where that was like a no-no and so you know they had made a deal with her that you have to win if you want to do that otherwise you know, you're not, we're not going to let you out of the country to do those things, you know, and she was a superstar, you know, bigger superstar than even me. So, um, that was a big deal. Like she needed it and wanted it more than I did. And, and then Elizabeth Manley, like 
skates the program of her life in, you know, in her home country. So, you know, it, it, on some levels, it wasn't meant to be, you know, there wouldn't have been a Carmen on ice if I had won the Olympics. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of look at the universe and say, oh, you know, <laughs> when something didn't happen, you got to see what did happen and, you know, and just there's always balance in the universe as far as like negative things and positive things. So, you know, there was a lot of good that, that came out of that games and, you know, Brian Bortano won and things like that. So it, you know, it just, you can't be so into your own world and not see the whole world. So that's, that's just kind of the way I look at it. And so, you know, we're, we're going through a lot of cognitive dissonance now because of social engineering and things like that. And I mean, I kind of give my parents a hard time. I'm like, did you guys know you were building the matrix? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you were building the matrix. They are. So, the algorithms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know whether I should get, it, well, it's not political. It, this, this is beyond politics. This is, you know, I, I went into medicine and, you know, I was kind of disappointed. I mean, I, I had it, you know, I, w I was able to do great things as a surgeon. I was able to help people that never would have been helped before. You know, I did very complex uh, joint reconstructions and things like that, but the medical system itself is like not a good system. And a lot of times it was just like, you know, you're trying, you're getting pushed to do things that the patient doesn't need and you're getting restricted from doing things they mm -hmm. do need, you know, and it's really hard to get paid. <laughs> and, you know, I was doing these like major reconstructions that, take hours and hours and you know you get paid a couple thousand bucks or something and you have to work just to get paid you know and I was in this little town and and um you know and then I you know I was in a relationship that was you know very hard because uh you know he was struggling with PTSD and, and borderline personality disorder and substance abuse and things like that and so you know, all of that stuff sort of happened for a reason, you know, for life experience, for things that, you know, that I'm able to use to help other people and be able to, um, you know, have a level of empathy and compassion for the bigger picture of, you know, what, it's it's always more than what you see on TV. So I kind of tell people like, yeah, <laughs> if I had to give you any kind of advice, you know, number one, just turn off your TV and stop watching it completely because it's not real. <laughs> it's not like real. That. And then, you know, at Stanford, you know, the the most important, probably the only important useful thing that I learned at Stanford was at freshman orientation when the president of the university addressed us and said to question authority. And I've been doing it ever since. It gets me in trouble, but you know, you have to do it. 
And then you got to follow the money and then you got to see who benefits. And then, you know, mm-hmm. once you start doing that, you're going to start seeing that the world doesn't work the way you thought it did. And so I had this delusion that, you know, my celebrity would result in people, you know, listening to what I have to say, but I was wrong. <laughs> I was totally wrong about that. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody really wanted to keep pulling me back into the skating meet, you know, and, and the, the work I'm doing now is just so complex. You know, once I started realizing that, oh, the control of money controls everything. Oh, we got to do something about that. And that was like back, gosh, well, at the 2008 financial crisis. So I've been working on this that long you know, figure out a way to make a platform to teach very complex things in a simple format. It's like, how do you spoon feed the red pill to people (laughs) without them having like a lot of anxiety and stress about it? Um, So that's kind of what I'm working on now. And, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can get it to a point of where, you know, it can be revealed because I've just had to fly under the radar and, you know, people find their way to me. So I'm working with people all over the world, all different ages, all different political facts. You know, I mean, I try to get people to just not get political because it's all, it's all stage. It's all theater. Um, it's all just to get you polarized and, <laughs> you know, isolated and, and not, you know, working as a unit. And so that's kind of uh, an awareness that, you know, the laws of the universe are just immutable. They apply to everybody equally, regardless of whether we believe them or not. (laughs) And we just, you know, every positive uh, energy has a negative one to balance it. And you you just have to recognize that that's how, that's how it works. Well, speaking on a little bit about, um, just kind of, you were talking about the mindset that you had in 88. So obviously for everyone listening, Debbie was the bronze medalist at the 1988 Olympic games in Calgary, which bronze medalist is an extraordinary feat. That's not anything to be like, Oh my gosh. I don't know. You have an Olympic medal. I was winning and I I want an Olympic medal. So many people want them. Oh, I know, but it's so overrated. (laughs) It's perspective. I agree. It's definitely overrated, but still perspective. You know, Mm -hmm. you can compare upwards or you can compare downwards. I know. It's just, it's just a thing. It's, you know, I mean, if I had gotten the bronze medal, but skated the program of my life, I would have been really happy with that. Yeah. If I had gotten the bronze medal and skated the program that I did, but at least enjoyed the Olympics, I would have been happy with that. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't get to enjoy the Olympics. It makes sense. You know, I just just did a a amazing workshop called Fully Live. Mm -hmm. And um, and the guy that was doing the workshop, his name is David Martin. You can find him on YouTube, David Martin World. And um, the guy, you know, it's like 
people, they, they see my accomplishments and they're like, oh, you did all these things. And it's like, my, my accomplishments are like this tiny, you know, in comparison. I mean, this guy has been all over the world. He's brilliant. He's genius. But he was telling this funny story about his brother actually wanted to go to the Olympics. And he's like, you know, my brother was just, you know, he was, he was like a, a slouch. <laughs> you know, he like wouldn't do anything. He said, but he, d he came up with this brilliant idea to do cross-country skiing for like, I can't remember which Caribbean country it was. Some he picked some random Caribbean country and just said, "We're gonna do, we're gonna do cross country skiing," and totally got to go to the Olympics. I was like, "Why didn't I think of that?" You know, I thought about going back in bobsled uh, when I found out they were gonna have women's bobsled, but then I ended up getting my residency, so I didn't do it. But like, I could have done bobsled for like you know i could have like gone to belize stayed there for like a year and done bobsled for belize and just had a ball it would have been like riding a roller coaster and had you know enjoy the olympics and not have any pressure it could have been so much i guess i could do that now let me think about that i could go and stay in belize well because i was thinking about putting the headquarters for my legacy goal lifeline wholeness ministry in belize because i want to eventually do some eco-educational tourism and stuff and yeah i could That'd just cool. go there and then i could just do bobsled i i i know somebody who's a bobsledder who would probably set that up that's sick <laughs> They need, yeah, they need like mixed bobsled because I, you know, I don't know how to drive a bobsled. I suppose I could learn. Hey, there's, there's that. the one athlete, Lolo Jones, she switched between yeah. track and bobsled, right? So, yeah, well that, well, most of, most of the bobsledders were, um, you know, track and mm -hmm. field. I mean, I'm like old and fat now, so like. Uh, all I could contribute to is the gravity, you know, to make it go down faster, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, but if it's from Belize, you know, nobody's expecting you to win. You just get on there. And you just ride it down like, you know, you become like the Eddie the Eagle of bobsled. You know, they had Jamaican bobsled, but, you know, they actually got sort of good. But yeah, Belizean bobsled. I think that might have to be something we have to think about. We'll just find some really fast person. And uh, that's so great. Yeah, it would be a blast. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about how you went to school while skating. Um, that's definitely a very unique. Oh gosh, that was a blur thing. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I'm definitely <laughs> curious to hear your perspective on it. Um, my parents had me go to school throughout my entire skating career and college, mm -hmm. like right on track after I finished high school. So I was trying to juggle yeah. that. And I know that you were also in school and then you went and you were pre-med at Stanford and you got your degree in engineering, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, during you know, the peak of your competitive career, you won the 86 nationals, you were 86 world champion. Um, the next year as well, you were competing all over internationally and then the Olympics the next year. Yeah. So how did you, how did you juggle that? <laughs> you know, I, I just did it. I mean, 
86. Love that. I, um, you know, I mean, I, I would say in 86, you know, I took the bare minimum, you know, I, it Stanford's on quarters. So, you know, I think you had to take like 15 mm-hmm. units a quarter or something like that. So I probably had like three classes a quarter and I always did well in my math classes, but you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a straight A student for sure. That's okay. I just, you know, <laughs> just did the best that I could and got through. And, um, you know, I decided, well, one of the dumb things that I did, I think it was 87, you know, I wanted to take something that resembled medicine because, you know, I, when I got to Stanford, I, I declared medical microbiology as my major. And it was really just because it sounded good and it had the word medical in it. I didn't know what medical microbiology was. And now it's ironic that we are having this whole COVID thing. It's like, dang, I should have taken that because then I really, I really could call them out on the BS. But anyway, um, yeah, I didn't end up doing it because it just seemed so terribly boring. Um, And so, you know, because I had to leave and go to Colorado, um, you know, I took some sports medicine classes um, in Colorado, but, but, but my sophomore year, I, I was like an idiot. I took like 21 units one quarter and, you know, one of them was human anatomy because I just was really interested and I like failed it and had to like take it over again. And it was just, it was just me being like, oh, I can do anything I put my mind to, you know? <laughs> and it's like, duh, what do you think? <laughs> it's like not even possible. And then I got injured, you know, that year mm-hmm. with my Achilles tendon. So, you know, I was kind of pushing it. And so, you know, it was a lot easier the, you know, the following year, you know, I got over the injury and, you know, we moved to Colorado and, you know, I took a couple of classes, uh, which, you know, was a reasonable load, um, but they were on semesters there. So we were done with the semester, like I said, in, you know, before Christmas break. So I still had like two months of just straight, you know, nothing but skating uh, leading up to the Olympics. And I just, I really burnt out pretty quick. You know, it was just, I wasn't used to that. Not, you know, I just, yeah, it was just, it was like too much being in the rank, I guess. You needed like the separation, the balance to kind of widen your perspective. Yeah, for me, it was just, yeah, it was a balance for me. So I, I, you know, I know a lot of times people get, you know, stress because they have to, you know, all this stuff. But I mean, I'm always doing like a hundred things at once. I just used to doing that. And, um, you know, I think I just didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, and I mm-hmm. ended up, you know, really having a lot of drama surrounding it. Mm-hmm. That actually makes a lot of sense because I feel like, like you said, when you have so many things on your plate, that can make a lot of people stressed if they don't normally handle it or don't know how to. But the opposite, if if you do normally have multiple things that are kind of balancing you out, the second you, you know, take something out of that equation, you're actually just more stressed on one thing. And, um, you know, yeah. adding in something like school can be the de-stressor because all of a sudden your mindset is switched into a completely different 
field rather than focusing on one thing, yeah. which would have been skating. Yeah. And you just, you know, you just, you feel less like that everything's in one basket and everything hinges mm -hmm. on this one thing. And there, there's things that could have improved, you know, the experience, but it's still not an excuse. You know I mean? I definitely should have, uh, you know, used the skills that I know and, and basically, um, you know, perform the way that I'm capable of performing. Mm -hmm. Did you, were you living on campus when you first started at Stanford? Um, like, were you fully engulfed mm -hmm. in that undergrad life with all of the other students? I did. I gained the freshman 15, had to like lose it really. I mean, I, I literally ate nothing but Campbell's soup for every meal for about two weeks because it was like 300 calories a can. So I was like, okay, I need to, I was doing the math, you know, I was like, okay, you know, you need 3,600 calories to lose a pound, you got to burn. So, okay, I'm only 900 calories a day. I mean, like an athlete doing this. So, I mean, I've learned, I know, I've learned that we're actually capable of a lot more than what they tell us we're capable of. I mean, I don't recommend doing 900 calories a day, but, you know, we, our, our, our consciousness is like so powerful. People have no idea. That's why you have to be careful what you say. You have to be careful what you think because it, it manifests the mm -hmm. physical. Um, and, you know, people don't even realize when they're doing it. Uh, so yeah, I got in my mind that 900 calories a day, that's going to work fine. And, you know, and it worked out, you know, yeah, I lived in, you know, the co-ed dorm and then sophomore year, I lived in like a co-ed frat and fun, you know, so just, fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, and then when I came back, you know, I was married and, uh, was skating shows on the weekend and you know and that was actually really hard on Brian um, you know he he had some classes he was supposed to be finishing up uh, from you know U University of Colorado but uh, you know I, when I came back I just kind of dived into it I mean I can remember like you know falling asleep <laughs> I would I would study in like our spare room and I'd fall asleep on the floor with my face in a physics book and leave on the weekends and go skate in the show and so um and I and I was at the height of my popularity so it was it was hard on Brian you know people would kind of you know they wanted to get to me and they'd like push him out of the way and stuff and it was just you know it's hard on the ego I guess and um you know so that's kind of why our, our my first marriage didn't really last you know in my second marriage I you know I was doing all the doctor stuff and you know, my main focus was my son when I was at home. And, you know, when I was with Jamie, I, you know, I was like, well, I'm not going to be like that. But it was just hard because he really, you know, he was having a hard time with his own emotions, you know, border, borderline personality disorders, uh, you know, it's a very tough um, condition to live with. You know, you kind of have this fear of abandonment and it kind of, 
makes you drives you nuts and you end up doing things that you wouldn't normally you know otherwise do so it was it was a learning experience and and uh you know i i mean for his privacy i'm not going to go into all the details of that but you know i think that we you know in the mental health field i think we have a lot of distortion in that field you know everybody gets diagnosed with bipolar and i'm i'm starting to wonder whether bipolar is even a real thing but <laughs> you know, there's, there's spectrums of personality disorders and personality disorders, you know, generally don't respond to medication. So, you know, you can, you can help people with, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, mindfulness training, and they don't teach any of that stuff in medical school. They teach you how to, they teach you how to write prescriptions for drugs. (laughs) And, um, you know, and so that's where you have to start following the money of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. And then, you know, what you're going to find is, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, big pharma is tied to big tech, is tied to big agriculture, is tied exactly. to the military yeah. industrial complex, mm-hmm. is tied to Silicon Valley, is tied to institutions of higher learning is tied to the media. It's all connected, yeah. Because that's really what, you know, like I said, my awakening process was when we had the 2008 financial crisis and and I realized that, oh wow, the control of money controls everything else. So if you have enough money, you can make, you can make whatever reality you want people to believe. So that's, um, you know, I probably have a, target on my back for saying that but (laughs) I'm gonna say it anyway (laughs) you know I I definitely have experienced my share of um frustrations with the the medical institutions and whatnot with just I've definitely had some injuries where I've you know gone in to seek help and I've definitely found that it it is more financially driven through pharma uh, rather than trying to heal an actual problem and so I've I've definitely delved into the health and wellness world a lot more and trying to do that kind of homeopathic healing mm-hmm. type stuff and focusing on nutrition and exercise rather than um, pharmaceutical drugs and whatnot. And yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, dependent person to person, but it, it is very fascinating. Um, yeah. It's a very fascinating world to kind of learn about. And so I've really been enjoying reading books and listening to a ton of different perspectives on it. So Wait, wait until you keep going and you discover quantum metaphysics. Then you really get to figure out how powerful we are to heal ourselves. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. 2021 for me is all about self-care and love, which means I'm focusing on being happy and feeling relaxed. Mental clarity is the first step to a better life, which is why I've been taking down Sunday Scaries CBD gummy bears like candy. When my mind starts racing or I need to decompress, I simply pop two gummies and in 20 minutes I'm in max relax mode. And there's no risk to buy. The company offers a 100% lifetime money back guarantee. If the product's not for you, that's okay, you'll get your money back. Sunday Scaries is in the stress relieving business, not the stress causing business. I got you 25% off to prove it. 
Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code Polina for your discount. That's promo code Polina for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. They're amazing and you won't regret joining their squad. That's cool. Well, you, you like originally after college, you became an orthopedic surgeon and you specialized in hip and knee replacement. Did you also mentioned you had some Achilles problems? um, Just that one year. Did any of those skating experiences influence like your um, interest in going into orthopedic surgery or was that something like an entirely different realm? Yeah, I, I, I could say that it definitely did. And I'm trying to remember the, the injury I had. I think, I think I fell on my tailbone, like I either fell on my tailbone or messed my ankle up. I can't remember what it was, but I was like novice, I think. And, um, you know, and you went to the regular doctor and they're like, stay off for six months, you know? And I'm like, I can't stay off for six months. <laughs> you know? It doesn't work. <laughs> so back then, um, Jim Garrick up in uh, San Francisco, I forget the, I forget what institution he, I think he had his own like sports medicine institute or something. I, I can't remember if he was associated with the university or not, but his name was Jim Garrick. And, you know, he was one of the, you know, early uh sports medicine uh docs you know out of the bay area and and so you know when i told him you know i wanted to be a doctor and everything you know they oh yeah so he would have been in my you know he would have been one of my very first mentors and i remember he let me come up and watch him do knee scopes and stuff so i actually had thought that i would end up going into sports medicine And then when I ended up going into orthopedics, well, one of my mentors was a guy by the name of Carl Nelson. And uh, he was, and and then when I was at Northwestern, I was actually doing kind of more sports medicine stuff. So I, I would have to say Dr. Nelson was who, you know, inspired me to go into joint replacement because I was like, this is way more cool than scoping knees. I have power tools and cement, you know. And so I, you know, decided that I wanted to be a joint replacement uh, surgeon, which I'm glad I did. I mean, it's very cool when somebody can't walk and and then they can walk, you know, because you gave them a pain-free way to and and mobilization and you know we were doing like outpatient hip replacements and mini incisions and all kinds of you know miraculous things you know and the patients just didn't have any pain really with the pain protocols that we had come up with and we we really didn't have to use a lot of narcotics at all um and so, you know, I, I started learning. It's like, oh, wow, you know, most people, you know, struggle recovering from surgery because of the anesthesia and not because of the surgery. And so, yeah, so we, you know, learned that, you know, you can attack pain from a lot of different pain uh, pathways and not have to drug people up and make their bowels stop and their breathing slow down and you know and just knock them out is not necessary 
because I would do these huge surgeries where they'd have a giant incision all the way down the leg and you've cut the bone and they got a big old plate and the tissue's been torn all up and and they would be fine you know I mean and it was just you know epidural anesthesia combined with you know just the right combination of things and we didn't have to give them a lot of um you know, heavy narcotics uh, because we were addressing pain before we even made it an incision, you know, and then I started using these uh, subcutaneous catheters on my knees because, you know, in my fellowship, we didn't really like the knee patients to talk to the hip patients because then they would think they weren't doing very well. Um, and I'm going to tell you a funny story of my, of my fellowship because it involves Rudy Galindo. So, <laughs> so I'm seeing this one of Dr. Long was my main mentor in joint replacement and, and in my residency. And um, so he had, you know, I was seeing one of his six week post-op patients. So the patient tells me, Dr. Long said I could go back to power yoga. I said, he did. <laughs> I said, well, what does that entail exactly? So this guy proceeds to sit on the floor, take his other leg, pull it up around behind his neck. And I'm like, you know, as I pick my jaw off the floor, I'm like, okay, well, we can't test that position on the operating table. I can't guarantee your <laughs> hip's going to stay in if you do that. And his face just sunk, you know, it was like, you know, I killed his dog or something. Oh, no. And he was like, Oh, I should have, I knew I should have gotten a surface replacement. You know, I said, there's lots of people that have hip replacements, Mary Lou Retton, Rudy Galindo. And when I said Rudy Galindo, his face lit up. He was like, Oh, Rudy Galindo has it. <laughs> you know? I said, yeah. So then he was okay. So I was like, phew. Rudy saved the day. So I learned that day that if you meet or exceed a patient's expectations, they're going to be very happy. But if you don't meet their expectations, they can end up, you know, very disappointed with the surgery, even if you do a perfect surgery. So I used to give my patients like three wishes, you know, so that I had some idea of what their expectations were, because if they were unrealistic, then we could talk about it before, before the surgery. And that, that's really, you know, what the informed consent, you know, should be. And it, it's interesting because Shep and I were just talking about informed consent because I bet you most of the people who have had the vaccine have not had a proper informed consent. So my thing is, okay, maybe we should make the informed consent and have the, you know, practitioner sign it, you know, accepting all liability for, you know, especially if it's an employer saying you can't work here unless you have the vaccine. Okay, well, will you sign this thing that says you're aware of all these side effects and will you accept liability, you know, for, for the possible damage? I think if more people actually do that, you're going to see a change real quick of, um, you know, people realizing that they are going along with something that they really know very little about. And 
you know, the things that I know, like we haven't even scratched the surface of what I know. <laughs> so like, oh my gosh. It's been really interesting for me traveling um, state to state this past year. Uh, I was doing some skating seminars and just visiting friends and family. Um, and it's so crazy, the culture just within different states, how vastly different people behave towards one another. Um, yeah, California is definitely probably the coldest state I know in terms of paranoia and like unfriendliness. <laughs> Everything is, you know, you have to, you have to not look at things in black and white and this is this is probably the best advice that i can give people you know polarization is what is going to be what undoes humanity so you know we have to realize that we are all like one energy really and so once you realize that and start seeing you know your neighbor your your fellow man as you you know, then you can actually start doing something that makes a difference. But if you keep acting like all your problems are external from you and it's somebody else's fault, and if my life would be great if it weren't for those people, you know, you have to get out of that. You know, I mean, and, and that's really why all this is happening. This is where the quantum metaphysics comes in. If you have cognitive dissonance <laughs> for a long enough period of time, the polarization gets so unbelievably outrageous that you know people slowly start to wake up so that's kind of where we're we're at right now and so i'm just kind of here trying to create things create tools that people can use once they get to that point because once you once you figured it out you know i mean when we did the workshop there's still people that are very well, how do we make people do, you know, I'm like, you can't make anybody do anything. <laughs> you, you have to lead by example, number one, and then you have to have empathy and compassion. And it's the way that you say things that, you know, the reality is, is you could say something in a certain way to one person and say it the same way to the next person and it'll, it'll land great on that person and it won't land great on the other person. So that's why you have to get out of this whole black and white thinking of, it, you know, everything is this way or that way. Um, it just, it's not like that at all. So, yeah. Well, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about as well, um, you know, not to be remissive, you probably been asked these kind of questions many times and you can speak however you want on them but like you said right now since we're it the culture and the climate is so politically charged um, especially with racial tension and just opportunity for minorities and um, you know you were a trailblazer in the 80s the first black athlete to win a winter olympic medal what kind of perspective did you have growing up regarding those kind of issues or that kind of culture? Um, did you ever experience or feel any lack of opportunity on your end or anything like that? Um, or was it just uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality? I would say the best thing that my mom did for me was to not ever let it be about race. So, you know, if I didn't win a competition or something, you know, she very well could have said, oh, well, it was because you were black. Well, if she had done that, it would have put limitations on me. And so she didn't do that. Um, she would just say, well, I guess you just have to be better. And, you know, and, and that way I could be able to see that, 
you know, there were all kinds of people that would get ripped off at skating and it didn't matter what race they were. You know, we, and Shep and mm-hmm. I were like watching videos all the time and it's like, oh man, you know, and you know, there was a lot of politics and skating and it wasn't a racial thing, but it's easy to make it a racial thing if you focus on that. And so I think that the media has created the racial thing because that's, that was the agenda. The agenda was how can we polarize the population so that people are so demoralized that they're isolated and alone. And, you know, we've, you know, we've divided them on race, we've divided them on politics, we've divided them on sexual orientation, we've divided them on, you know, it's like, if we can divide them on everything, then maybe they won't notice that we're running off with all the money. Statistically, the leading cause of death in America is government approved medical treatments. You know, people should watch the movie, uh, Death by Medicine, you can find it on YouTube and see how the pharmaceutical industry and just the medical treatments. I mean, I actually, a friend of mine, I had hired him to be like a research assistant with me many years ago. And he finally just got done. He went to physical therapy school, so he's almost done. And so he was doing his clinical. So uh, on my birthday, he was sending me these things. And, and he was telling me some horror stories. You know, he's telling me about this lady who has multiple sclerosis and had an ACL rupture and they did surgery on it, you know, and I'm like, why would they do an ACL reconstruction on, you know, on an MS patient? I said, was she an athlete? He's like, no, she's like, she was actually overweight too. And they did this, they use hamstring, they, you know, they, and then the hamstring didn't work. So then they tried to use the patellar tendon and, and then told her she could be weight bearing as tolerated. So the whole thing fell apart. A wise professor <laughs> told me two things. He said, if number one, if you want to know what's wrong with the patient, ask the patient. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, we do all this testing and all this stuff, but you know, the patient knows what the heck's wrong with them. Number two, there's no condition that cannot be made worse by surgery. So, you know, you really have to, you know, exhaust the non-surgical options, you know, before you uh, do this. And, and, you know, and the reality is not all doctors are created equal. Just because they went to medical school, just because they got board certified, you know, just because they have a piece of paper does not necessarily mean that they have a clue what they're doing. So, you know, you do have to ask questions, you have to do your own research, you know, and if, you know, if you're not getting a good assessment of the risks involved going into any kind of a treatment, you haven't been informed because there's a lot of risk with, with a lot of the treatments that we have. Any, any medication that you take, you know, has a risk. Um, any surgery that you do has, you know, has a risk. So people, people need to be mindful. Yeah, I think it's, it's actually really interesting. Um, somebody put it to me like this once where we talk about how we have so many, so many teachers uh, in this country, but anyone who's gone to school will know there's only 
you know, a select few that you can really count in as this person was a great teacher and I loved, you know, working with them. And similarly, we have a lot of doctors in this country, um, but there are really a handful of people who will go above and beyond and really focus on your health. And especially from an athlete perspective, it's so important because I, I know athletes who have gone through injuries and they've had to go see like six or seven doctors before they finally find one that's not going to just automatically put them through surgery, but instead, you know, work in different ways with PT or whether that's like stem cells or, you know, what other, whatever other kind of treatment that is going to be um, less risky than something like surgery. And it, it takes time. It's not just, you know, listening to the first one that you go to. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know it, it, it really is. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of the naturopathic, um, you know, cures come from people who have been to a million doctors and couldn't find a solution. And then they, you know, they go and they start researching and then they start finding things and they end up helping people because, you know, they've already been through it and, you know, discovered, you know, that there were natural cures and see the the problem is that the pharmaceutical they you know they don't they don't want cures because it would put them out of business <laughs> the medical industry is like a 1.7 trillion dollar a year industry so if people suddenly you know if people became aware that they could heal themselves because they can i'm telling you they can um you know naturally um, you know, imagine what that would do. I mean, the whole economy would just like shift in a whole different way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there are people who have an agenda to hang on to that control. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting because I, you know, some of the most basic things for human health or you know exercise and nutrition and hydration and all of those kinds of things and yet with you know the industries of our country that do hold the most money none of that is really going towards real health um which is why i've i've really delved into that you know health and wellness nutrition aspect even like five years ago i didn't realize that something as basic as acne Mm -hmm. um, was correlated with the type of food I was eating. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, which is so silly because it's so obvious. Or I mean, I guess it's not obvious if you don't really read into it, but it's simple and it's so easily fixed. But, you know, there's so many people in this country that just, that's not something that they think is actually going to be a solution. And so they don't even try those initial Um, steps that they can take to improve their general health and it's just straight to the medication that can in turn have multiple side effects yeah Mm -hmm. I want a quick fix with a pill and all it does is yeah I mean it masks side effects and then it and it causes other side effects so you get you know a pill for this side effect and another pill for that side effect and it's like an endless crazy cycle. Well, you know, I mean, that was kind of what got me interested in it because I had friends, you know, people that I trust that were like, yeah, I've seen like seven doctors for my sinus problems and none of them can fix it. And I went to this naturopath and I'm cured, 
you know, they gave me this elixir and I'm cured, you know. And so I had about three different people, you know, with three different conditions tell me this. And so I was like, hmm, you know, so I started, you know, looking into this and just posting about things that I would find. And then, you know, people would come and comment and say, oh, I have, you know, condition or whatever. And so I would look it up and it literally would take like five minutes to find stuff. And I would say, well, I don't know if this works, but try it. You know, it's not going to hurt you, you know, but it was, you know, usually something that, you know, you know, people had, had done and it had worked for them. We've gotten so obsessed with the scientific method, which I think is like gravely flawed, by the way. But, <laughs> you know, it's like every, every person is different. You know, they have a different makeup. And so to, to say that something, you know, that you can do this study, you know, and measure certain things. And, and a lot of times it's like not even a measurement of, you know, wellness, right? You know, I mean, wellness is a subjective thing, um, you know, and they sort of, you know, they sort of make fun of the placebo effect, like it's a fake thing. They don't realize that the placebo effect is an actual physiologic effect, um, you know, and there's also a nocebo effect. So, you know, if you tell somebody they have six months to live and they start, you know, secreting the stress hormones and start believing that they only have six mm -hmm. months to live, they die. You know, it has an effect on the cardiovascular system and everything. So, you know, it's really important what we tell ourselves because it does have, you know, it, it acts all the way down to the cellular level. And, you know, and for me, you know, the way I got into quantum uh, metaphysics and uh, quantum healing hypnosis technique, you know, it was like, I was like stargazing and, you know, and put the intention out that I wanted to know how the universe worked, you know, and then six months later, all of a sudden this random person sends me information and says, Oh, if you really want to know about natural healing, you need to look into the work of Dolores Cannon. And, uh, and I'm like the one in a million person that's like, okay, I'm going to look that up, you know? And, and, you know, I mean, that's the same way I found out about the financial system was somebody saying, oh, if you really want to know what's going on with this financial crisis, you need to watch the money masters. And I'm the one in the million persons like, hey, I want to look that up, you know, and, um, and yeah, then you start following the money and following the, you start following things and you start realizing that, wow, the world just doesn't work at all the way we think it does. No. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, getting to that point of where you realize, you know, the law of one, that we're all just one energy, you know, and it is, it's quantum, um, you know, quantum physics, you know, Nikola Tesla talked about, you know, I, I'm going to mess the quote up, but, it, you know, it, it's something to the effect of, you know, when man starts to study the non-physical, he will make more progress in you know, in a year than he, than he did in the hundred years. You know, we have this belief that, you know, everything has to be tangible and measurable in, you know, in the physical, but there's all this quantum energy out there, 
and you know the human consciousness is is you know we have powers that we are not using because we have been asleep and we've been suppressed and it's just like anything you know if you don't train you know you're out of shape certain things that we have the ability to do that if you've let it be asleep for your whole life um you know you're not going to be able to you know tap into those powers but that's you know but that's why you know you know that's why we have people doing quads now <laughs> because they are not putting those limitations on themselves and so you know you have to kind of realize that that's why it is because we really are limitless beings we just have to allow ourselves to be and you know right now everybody's so fearful that they're looking externally for solutions and that's really not what it's going to be and most of the people that figure this out you know are going to go within themselves and realize that hey i have the power to change all this by changing the way i think and the way i look at things and the way i believe things and the way i treat others yeah so that's really, yeah i think the yeah. i think framing you know any scenario or situation in a way that's going to benefit you and grow you in a way that you are going to lead a better lifestyle whether that be you know healthier going outdoors i love the outdoors i've become such a granola just like nut in the past like few years just like i have free time i'm gonna go to yes up north to the coast to the yeah. forest where there's no yeah. service and I'm just gonna bask in the trees and I'm gonna forest bathe. <laughs> it's it's so refreshing. Yep. I know. That's why I wanna go to Belize. Like there's a you know, there's a there's a beautiful part in the Cayo district of Belize and there there's a bunch of off grid communities there. And I mean you know, it's just like out there in the jungle and it's just beautiful. I mean, they have beautiful, you know, constructed homes out there. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. Off-grid and beautiful lakes and, and uh, mountains. And they actually have ruins. They have pyramids actually in, in Belize. I mean, I, I went to Egypt for my level two quantum healing hypnosis technique course and um i'm not gonna go into all the <laughs> all the psychic metaphysical things that happened to me when i went to egypt but um you know it, when you start thinking about the origins of humanity and how you know it, it you know egyptologists have not been telling us the truth this, this whole time so <laughs> you know they're they're all gonna hate me too but basically, you know, human history goes back way, 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 way further than what we've been told. And, um, you know, that that had a lot to do with what Nikola Tesla had an awareness of, you know, I mean, he wanted to basically, he had, you know, discovered free energy and he wanted to give it to the world for free. And they were like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, we can't put a meter on that. So we're going to take you out. And, you know, he died penniless. And, you know, he actually passed his secrets on to a guy by the name of Otis Carr. 
So that's just a little seed. Like I'm like, if anybody wants to listen to this over and over, like I've told you where to go, like search for really cool stuff. So yeah, Otis Carr uh, YouTube channel. I mean, Otis Carr is like not still alive, but you gotta, he's the guy that Nikola Tesla passed his secrets on. And so there's a guy named Ralph Ring who was working with him at the time and so they were into some pretty cool stuff cool well do you still do you still watch skating now ever are you kind of yeah since i've been here because shep has a big tv over here and he's you know we just put a lot of different things on there and you know and we put silly stuff on too but we um you know I, i otherwise i probably wouldn't watch a lot of skating so, you know, I, I will say just kind of recently, maybe in the past couple of months, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the stars of the universe has aligned where I am reconnecting with, you know, friends from the skating world. So like Rosanna Tovey is here too. And we, you know, turns out we have a lot of things in common and oh, and I saw Lane Zayak last night too. She lives here in Florida. Yeah. So, oh. you know, the secret to success is to watch what the masses are doing and do the opposite. So, <laughs> I like I said, I'm I'm sort of trying to figure out like what is the best way to kind of you know, make this not a traumatic experience of, you know, waking up because, you know, it can be very stressful. Um, you know, if you feel like you're kind of in a hopeless situation, like, like you don't have a way to, you know, to do anything, but there, there's lots of things that, you know, that people can do. And, you know, like you said, you know, just, eat natural foods you know i mean our our food supply is so poison and and see if you follow that money you know monsanto all that kind of stuff yeah there's a lot of like i think it's called glyphosate i think they started using that in the 80s and it's kind of correlated with all the gluten allergies we have now i've listened to a ton of podcasts on scientists who talk about that and um, it's crazy i i only like going to farmers markets now that like local and then um I definitely want to grow like I want to have my own garden when I have my own place one day and oh I'm like invest because I haven't you know I this year you know like I said I had I needed to go around and sort of collaborate with people and so I was like man I'm I'm not going to be in one place for a while and so I was like I need a garden that I can pull behind the previous so I actually wrote to these people because I I had seen their ad you know came up on YouTube and it was like this really good system for growing plants like way bigger and more lush and faster than normal and so I wrote to them and I said I really like you know, your system, I said, but here's my dilemma. I'm getting ready to kind of be traveling around a whole lot, but I, you know, I, I am concerned that we may be forced into like a food shortage kind of situation. 
and you know, and I want to be able to grow my own food. I said, can you come up with anything? And so, yeah, they sent me like a picture of like a little trailer and like a little greenhouse. And I'm like, that's cool. I could just be driving around. <laughs> Your little own private garden. That's funny. I mean, people get really creative. You know, once you become a nonconformist, you know, the, the level of creativity, you know, is limitless. You can, you can come up with all kinds of stuff. You know, that was awesome though. Thank you so much. Oh, good. Yeah, it was fun. Very good. Well, it's nice meeting you. And I'm, I'm so glad my mom like gave you a pet talk. That's actually really sweet. Yeah, no, it, it helped me a lot in that time, actually, because uh, especially going to school, I was I was hearing a lot of things of, you know, you shouldn't be going to school at the same time as this, you should put everything into skating and yeah, they told me that same junk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely irritating. So to have your mom come in and just kind of like, supportive of that, I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah yeah it's awesome i know that that it is it's it's that was her strength of you know really instilling that you know you can do whatever you set your mind to and you know and you can you know you can't you know you can't let things defeat you as well and you um you can't let, well, I can tell you why she's like that because somebody did that to her. You know, my mom was actually brilliant. She was like a straight A student and she actually was taking college classes while she was still in high school. And she had a little, you know, mm. baby, my brother. And, you know, as a matter of fact, my grandma had to like go to class and take notes for her while she was out, you know, a maternity um, and then my brother, you know, she would take him to like atomic physics class and he'd be like, mom, look at me, you know? And, um, so yeah, she was, she was kind of doing that, but she actually wanted to be an engineer and she wanted to go to Cornell, which is where her father, you know, went to veterinary school. And, um, yeah. And she had some counselor like, oh, you can't do that. And, you know, and so she ended up you know, not doing that, um, you know, she went to um, Wichita State, you know, majored in math and mi uh, minor music. But yeah, she found out later that they actually had, you know, scholarships for women and, you know, minorities and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, she probably could have done that. Um, so yeah, so I think it was like because of that she was like there's no way that's happening to my daughter <laughs> yeah. so yeah so that was good that was good all right well i should let you go because i could like talk all night <laughs> it'll be great well you're, you're an excellent host so i just want to point that out you did a very good job well thank you so much you're welcome I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast episode. Please let me know what you think. Subscribe to my channel. Give me a rating. Give me a review. Follow me on my Instagram. That's where I'm promoting this. My username is at Paulina Edmonds. And stay tuned for my upcoming episodes. Keep an eye out for them. And I can't wait to talk to you guys next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.